Thank you, May. Sit down. Thank you again to our team leading us. I had the opportunity this week to um, conduct a, I guess you'd call it a Bible study with um, a number of pastors down in Shepparton and uh, the, the, <laughs> the study was around how to be a good follower, which is not what I'm going to preach on tonight, but it's actually a really hard topic for a pastor to talk about, how to be a good follower. And one of the things that we reflected on was how uh, part of our being good followers is honouring those who actually lead and make their leading a joy and what a joy it is to be able to affirm the team that are nowhere near the stage anymore, they've all gone, uh, and say thank you to them for their dedication and for their service. At least three of them I was just looking at have been uh, here from eight o'clock this morning because three of our team are on morning service as well. And so they've spent a fair portion of our, our day, their day, uh, in serving us. And so we want to say thank you to them and honour them. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to the day that at the end of a sermon, there's a spontaneous applause too. <laughs> no, that's not true, because all that we do is for the Lord, not for ourselves. Tonight, uh, we finished last week our series in Colossians. And tonight we're going to start a new series and I thought we'd start with a little Bible quiz which you would have seen the first question up there for. I don't like using the word Bible trivia because I think that's an oxymoron. Those two words should not be used in the same sentence uh, because there is no trivia in the Bible. We're going to have a little Bible quiz. So working with the people you are with just around you, you might like to do this with a partner or in a group of three. If someone's got a piece of paper, you can write down their answer. Otherwise, just remember your answer. What I'm going to do is throw you the questions, you can figure out the answer and then I'm going to tell you the answer pretty well straight away anyway but see how you go because uh, we just want to see who the smartest person is in the room. Actually we probably won't find the smartest person in the room using this strategy but uh, this is just a sort of a doorway into what I want to talk about tonight around uh, the value and importance of the scriptures in the life of the believer. So here's the first question. How many copies of the Bible are estimated? We don't know the answer for sure. How many copies of the Bible are estimated to be sold each year? Write down your answer to that question. Is it 10 million copies? Is it 100 million copies? Or is it 200 million copies? Now, those of you who are good at this will be thinking, okay, how many people are there in the world? It's about 7 billion, 7,000 million. Divide that by 7, multiply it by a factor of 2 so that every person has two Bibles. Remembering, of course, that one of those Bibles might be in another language, so divide that by 2 again. Uh, multiply it by your age, by the number of aunties that you have and you won't have any idea what the answer is. <laughs> okay, you ready for the answer? Good. The next... Oh, no, I was going to give you the answer, wasn't I? <laughs> Who said 10 million? No, 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 no. Doesn't work like this. Not like... <laughs> 10 million. Come on, be brave. Great answer. Wrong answer, though. <laughs> 100 million. Great answer. Right answer. Okay. Well done, you people. Here we go. The next question. In 1631, a Bible was printed with a serious error in it. The verse in question left out the word not. And so the verse with the error read, Thou shalt commit what? Jesus was teaching 
you might be familiar with the passage, a very serious error was made by the printers, they left out the word not. Was it, thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt commit blasphemy, or thou shalt commit covetousness? <laughs> Nailing your colours to the mask there, Tim. <laughs> Who'd like to go with A? Who'd like to... <laughs> no, hang on a second. <laughs> Let me rephrase what I just said. <laughs> Who would like to nominate A as the answer that they think is correct? <laughs> okay, not so many now. <laughs> the, the, the numbers have dropped. <laughs> you guys are hilarious. Uh, who, would, who, who would like to nominate B? There's a few. Who would like to nominate C? All right, well, the answer was A. And just in case you're interested, there are, in fact, nine copies of what have become known as the Sinner's Bible still in existence. <laughs> the rest of them were destroyed, much to the horror of the people who published them, as you might imagine. Thou shalt commit adultery was the reading. How many languages has the full Bible been translated into? We'll move a bit quicker now. A, 532, full, uh, full translation, full Bible, not just part translations. 1032 or 2032, who'd like to go with A? B, C, we really got no idea here, have we? It's actually A, okay, 532. Many, many more part translations. A little trickier, this question. This might be a bit hard to read, actually. John Wycliffe provided the first translation of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English for his efforts after his death. The Catholic Church did what to his body, remembering uh, the Catholic Church were those who guarded the translations. Did they bury his body with a copy of the English Bible? Did they dig up his body and burn it as punishment or did they do nothing? A. Good on you, Soph. Well, what's it like being the only one? Uh, you're the only one who's wrong. You're the only one who's wrong. B. They dug up his body and they burned it. And C. They did nothing. Well, the answer is actually B. They were so incensed by his activities in translating the Bible into English because that meant anybody could read it who could read English. Not a good thing if you're trying to control. And that they burnt his body. Oh, for what purpose? Who knows? Next question. Which country produces the largest number of Bibles each year? India, China or America? A, India. B, China. C, America. And the answer's... B, China. They print the most. They don't use the most, interestingly enough. In fact, it's hard to get Bibles in parts of China. The Bible is the most what book each year? Stolen, lost or searched? Stolen. stolen. We're going with stolen. Who wants to go with stolen? Who's got a stolen Bible? <laughs> that is the correct answer. How many women are named in the Bible? That's a trickier question. 140, 49 or 12? Who's going to go with 12? C. It's more than that. Who's going to go with B, 49? That'd be right. Next question though. I don't know why that was question one, but anyway. How many women speak in the Bible? We had 49 that were named. How many women speak in the Bible. How many people would like to go with 49 again? Sorry, James, you are wrong. Who would like to go with 12? 
That would be a great answer if it was right, but it's not right because, in fact, there's 93 who speak across the whole of the Scripture. Some of them, of course, are not names. And so, uh, we, uh, we have them saying... <laughs> How did that go? On the count of three, a big R. One, two, three. Ah, moment of realisation. How many songs are recorded in the Bible? 18, 53 or 185? The answer is C, it's 185 songs. And the last question, there's another one that was question number one. This auto-formatting auto is a pain. The world's, the world's largest Bible weighs how many kilograms... 235, just think about the weight, 235 kilograms, that's a quarter of a tonne, roughly. B, 494 kilograms, that's half a tonne. Or C, the weight of a small car. A, B, C, we got no idea, do we, really? The answer's actually B, 494 kilos. All right, how did you go? Who got 10 out of 10? 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10, you've stopped counting, you gave up because it was too hard. <laughs> okay, well done. Uh, we, uh, we do that because this evening we're going to uh, dig our way into the value and importance of the Scriptures for the believer. But before we do that, let me just tell you a couple of stories from the Scripture. The first one happened around about 2000. 600 years ago when the Lord called Ezekiel and Ezekiel saw some magnificent visions. We have these recorded in the book of Ezekiel. He was called to speak some very deep truths but one of the stranger things that he was asked to do by God was found in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and I'll read just a couple of verses here as an introduction. God said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came to me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. It was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving to you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate and it tasted, does anyone know what it tasted like? What did Ezekiel say it tasted like? It did, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. What a strange thing that God asked Ezekiel to do. Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets around that same kind of area of time, uh, who also spoke about eating the words of God. He said, he was speaking figuratively, he was speaking in a, in a metaphor, when your words came, I ate them, they were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord Almighty. Now, quiz question for you, if you can tell me the answer to this question, if I can get this slide to move, Danielle, you might have to take it over for me. Who is this? Probably not someone all that well known to us. Brahma, I was looking at you for the Roman 
governors and, uh, and all those guys, the Caesars. But this guy, he's actually more famous than many of us realise. He was uh, the ruler of Ethiopia around the end of the 18th, uh, the 1800s, sorry, into uh, the early 20th century, 1900s. His name was Menelik II, the ruler of Ethiopia. And though we might think of Ethiopia as a country that has struggled with droughts and with poverty and with disease and with famine, in his time, Menelik II actually did an amazing work of modernising Ethiopia. He actually resisted the Italian colonisers who came to try and take over. You see, it was during that time that many European nations were coming into Africa and taking land and colonising areas. He was strong enough and well enough organised to actually be able to resist the Italians. And then he set about a program of modernisation where he established telecommunications and railways and introduced many, many uh, good things into his country like schools. He was, of course, as is the case with anyone who rules Ethiopia, very much subject to uh, the vagaries or the, the things that kind of press the country from outside and, and even not long after his time there was a rinderpest outbreak that killed off the cattle which meant the people couldn't plough the land, which meant they couldn't plant their crops, which meant there was famine. But in his time he did an amazing job of bringing Ethiopia from uh, a very struggling kind of country to one that was doing quite well at the time. He also made it a habit to eat the Bible, literally, believe it or not. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were speaking metaphorically. They were speaking as though it was a vision that they saw. They didn't literally take the words or the pages out of the Bible, but Menelik II did because he believed that you could actually bring about good health by eating the Bible. You could gain wisdom by literally eating the Bible and he tore pages out of his Bible and he ate them. In 1910, he had a very serious stroke <laughs> and, uh, and that, uh, that did debilitate him somewhat. But in 1913, he believed that God had said to him, I want you to eat the books of one and two kings. And so he started uh, there in one kings and he started to eat the book of one kings. And he worked his way through until the point somewhere, I'm not sure where he got up to because history doesn't actually tell us this, Somewhere along the lines, he died. Some believe that uh, he died from a bowel obstruction. Others believe that it may actually have been the arsenic in the print that killed him. But the lesson for him, and in some senses for us, is this. Though we are to consume the Word of God, we're not to actually eat the pages like Menelik II did. Now this evening I do want to talk to you about consuming the Word of God because over these next four weeks we're going to talk uh, a little bit about what is, what is uh, it that energises our life as a disciple? What is it that sits under the foundation of being a disciple of Christ? Four simple messages in a way uh, but four really strategic ones and tonight we're going to talk about the place of the Scriptures, the place of the Bible in the foundation of being a disciple. Next week, uh, Matt's going to talk to you or someone will talk to you about uh, prayer. We're going to look at the role of worship and then our final 
a formal message around this will be on the importance of Christian fellowship, the church. So four important things that we are part of that build us up in our faith. But tonight we're going to take a little bit of time to have a look at what the Bible actually says so that we might be healthy disciples. Now I use that word healthy deliberately because when it comes to eating physical food, we know about healthy food, don't we? Just give me some examples of healthy food or food that you might consider healthy. And Brendan, I'm not going to take Mars bars as an answer. (laughs) Bethany? 70% as in 70% cocoa. Okay, so well, I'm not sure I'm going to take that one either. But anyway, let's get... Okay. Apples, thank you. Apples are supposed to be good for you. Yes, grapes. Tofu, that's... Yeah, the jury's out on tofu as far as I'm concerned. Healthy stuff. Bananas, thank you, good answer. There's lots of stuff that we know is healthy for us. How many people eat healthy food all the time? Not very many hands popping up at this moment. We know about healthy food. We know what sort of food is good for us, but we don't always eat it, do we? And the same is true when it comes to our walk as followers of Christ. We know what will nourish us. We know because we hear it talked about in church all the time what will make us healthy but we don't always consume it. We don't always take it on board, do we? So we're going to dig down or drill down into that a little bit tonight because a healthy diet from the Scriptures, a healthy diet of the Word, of prayer, of worship and fellowship will actually help you Uh, become a healthy follower of Christ and we're going to talk about that tonight as well as just a few practical strategies and we start with the Bible because I think uh, it's one of the more challenging things for us, it's one of the more difficult things for us to sometimes dig into. For instance, if I was to ask this question, how many people here have read through the whole Bible from front to back? There's a few. How many people would like to do that? Another question, well, there's there's a project for you for this week. Uh, How many people who have read it through from start to finish found it easy all the way through? Not very many of us would say that reading all of the stuff in the Scripture is actually that easy, is it? There's portions of the Scripture that are hard to understand. There are portions that are very difficult to get our heads around. There is language there that we're not used to. There are concepts there that are quite difficult for us. There are stories which really shouldn't be read to children at bedtime. I can remember, I can give you this illustration, Um, years ago when my son Josh was about nine, we were living uh, in a house up there in New Guinea and I decided to read to him the book of Judges as bedtime story, not perhaps the smartest thing I ever chose to do. And I can remember to this day, we got to the passage that was about Ehud, one of the judges. You know how judges kind of works? Israel walks away from the Lord uh, and so the Lord allows other countries, other kings to oppress them. Does that make sense? That word oppress comes in, belts them up basically Uh, and then they cry out and say, oh Lord help us, save us, so he sends a judge. And on this occasion, this particular passage of scripture uh, the the nation of Israel has apostatized, they've walked away from God and Eglon, the king, has uh, taken over. He's not a particularly nice customer 
And the scripture actually tells us of Eglon, Eglon, sorry, he was a very worldly man. Now, when I say worldly man, you think, oh, okay, secular. No, I mean like he was wider at the equators than he was at the poles. He was a very obese guy, Eglon. And God sent a judge whose name was Ehud. Ehud was a particularly gifted gentleman. He was left-handed. Yes. And that meant that he had his sword on his right side. Strategic because in those days, if you went into battle, you would normally assume that uh, your opponent would be drawing his sword from his left side with his right arm and so you would approach with that in mind. But Ehud was a left-handed man and he fashioned a two-edged sword that was 450 millimetres long. Pretty impressive. He went to King Eglon. This is the story I'm telling my son, remember? He's nine years old. He's lying in bed. He's about to go to sleep. This is the last thing he's going to hear before he nods off. And uh, (laughs) Ehud uh, went into Eglon and said to him, hey, Eglon, I've got a message for you. And Eglon said to his attendants, because the king always had attendants, he said, you guys just kind of disappear out of the room. This is some secret men's business going on here. And Ehud came up close to Eglon and put his arm around him, drew, hang on, left-handed man, drew his sword and the scripture tells us it drove his sword into the belly of Eglon. Now here I am reading this to a nine-year-old. You know what I say when I say that there are some scriptures that perhaps you might not want to read to your children at bedtime? Josh loved it. (laughs) This is the best story. And the part he really liked was the fact that Eglon was so obese. The scripture actually tells us that the fat closed in over the knife and totally surrounded it. And he would, I guess he was looking saying, oh, goodbye to that one. (laughs) I'm not getting that back. It actually came out his back. That's what the scripture tells us. Now, the point, we can just kind of sit with that. I'm kind of glad there's not too many children here tonight. Amelia, don't have nightmares. (laughs) Uh, The point is this, there are passages in the scripture that are really difficult to access, difficult to understand and uh, hard for us to get our heads around. Some of the stuff in Revelation, I know mature Christians look at it and scratch their heads and ask the question, what is going on? We don't understand that. We also know as we're talking about um, the scriptures that an awful lot of Christians don't make Bible reading a regular part of their spiritual life or if they do, they do it in a very hit and miss manner. Nevertheless, across the breadth of the scripture and the teaching of Jesus, it's recognised time and time and time again, if you want to grow as a follower of Christ, you need a good diet of spiritual uh, material and that material will be found right here in the scriptures we need to be nourished by his word we need to feed on the word of god not like manalik the second but in the manner that we are encouraged to by the scriptures to dedicate ourselves to studying to accessing the scriptures to learning what the god is saying to us through it you might remember if you turn uh, to matthew chapter 4 just very quickly i haven't got this up on the screen but in matthew chapter 4 we have one of the records Uh, of the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus took place immediately after what event? 
Thank you, Darren, the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus was baptised. Those of you who have been baptised will recognise the occasion when you were baptised as a spiritually very significant occasion. And Jesus would too. It was an occasion where he demonstrated his obedience to the Father. Immediately after his baptism, where did Jesus uh, go? Where was he taken? The Spirit took him somewhere, who remembers? Into the wilderness. Now I was going to pick on you again, Darren. Can you describe for me what the wilderness of Judea is like? What's out there in the wilderness? That is exactly right. If you can imagine the driest, most barren, desolate place that you've ever seen, multiply it by five, that's what the wilderness of Judea is like. In fact, (laughs) Darren and I were there together last year and it is just, there's nothing there, not even a blade of grass. And that's where Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days. And the scripture tells us that while he was in the wilderness, Satan came to him and tested him. We talk about temptation. Uh, it's probably fair to also talk as, as Jesus being tested. Temptation is a bit like a test. And uh, the tempter came to him. Now remember what he was doing out there in the wilderness for 40 days. He had no food or drink. He must have had something to drink but certainly no food and Satan came along and in Matthew chapter 4, the very first temptation that, uh, that Satan brings to him is this one in Matthew chapter 4 verse 3, the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Who's ever done a fast before? We all have, I'm assuming Most of you will eat something tonight and then you will fast until breakfast time tomorrow. That's why we call it breakfast, right? Break fast, that's the origin of that word. But if you've ever done a fast longer than that, let's say you've gone for a day, what are you feeling like by the end of the day? Some of us would say a bit like our throats have been cut. If you've ever had to fast beyond a day, you will know just how challenging that is. If you've ever intentionally done something like the World Vision 40-hour famine, is there anyone that's done that here? I imagine quite a number of you have. 40 hours without eating anything of substance, barley sugars and drinks, that's all. Um, That's probably plenty anyway, but by the end of 40 hours, you're just about ready to kill for food. You imagine after a 40-hour famine walking down there through... um, um, Lee Shopping Centre and Baker's Delight are just cooking up the last of the breads for the day. Man alive. What a temptation it must have been for Jesus after 40 days when the tempter said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become breads. And yet Jesus responded like this. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did not say... You can live without eating physical food or food that we should eat. Uh, There are some people who say we can live without eating food. There's a group, I'm guessing, in America called the Breatharians. Has anyone ever heard about the Breatharians? There's some wackos out there, let me tell you. This is serious. You might laugh, but there's a group called the Breatharians who believe that you can survive without eating or drinking. All you've got to do is imbibe or take into your body the life force. Problem is, 
there's not that many of them alive to actually prove that you can do that for very obvious reasons. In fact, there's some that have got in serious trouble when they've insisted other people try doing it. Jesus never said that you can live without physical food, but he did say you cannot survive if you want to be spiritually vital without spiritual food. And it's kind of interesting if you have a look at the temptations that uh, Satan brought to Jesus. In every case, what did Jesus use to reject the temptations? In every single temptation, what did Jesus use to uh, stand up to Satan? It was the Scripture. Every occasion, Jesus used the Scripture to rebuff, to reject, to answer Satan's tests. And in that first one, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, That actually is a quote from the book of the law, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses said to the people, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Now, God gave them physical food to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there's a a spiritual lesson in the manna. The manna was physical food that God gave to his people to teach them that they needed more than that. You're not going to survive spiritually on physical food. You will need the words that come from the mouth of God. Physical bread is not enough to sustain a disciple. And there's loads and loads of references through the Scripture to the Scripture being a form of spiritual food. If you turn to somewhere like Isaiah chapter 55, for example, uh, you'll find these words. This is a great invitation to people who... Uh, was struggling in a dry and thirsty and hungry land, the prophet said, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. There's an invitation that the prophet Isaiah gave to the people to come and be nourished on spiritual foods. If we go to the book of Job, you know the story of Job. Job who was a man who walked faithfully before the Lord and Satan came along and took away many of those things that Job had. Job had some friends that said, Job, just curse God and die. But Job said, no, I will be faithful to God no matter what happens. I know my Redeemer lives, I will not uh, reject the Lord. And Job said this, this is in Job 23, 12, if you're making notes, I have not departed from the commands of God's lips, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily breads. And Job said that because he knew that the words of the Lord uh, were like a food that nourishes the soul. So the question that we started with, what is the significance of the Word of God? For the disciple, it's spiritual food. We cannot survive without it. We can't expect to be anything but skinny, famished, starved, if you want to use complicated words, emaciated Christians. If you don't dig into the Word, you'll just kind of walk through your life as a follower of Christ, hungry the whole time. You might not realise it, but you will be. You will not grow unless you dig into the Word of God. But there's another reason why the Scriptures are important to the Christian and it's this. It's because this whole book introduces us to Jesus Christ. 
who the scripture tells us is the author and perfecter of our faith. There's actually a very um, interesting metaphor that Jesus uses. He talks about himself being the bread of life. There's a lovely story in, um, in John chapter 6. You'll be familiar with this story. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually probably misnamed there because we know that was 5,000 men that were counted. There's probably closer to twelve or 14,000 people who were fed on that occasion. But let's not get stuck in those details. Immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, what did Jesus do? He left. They were on the, uh, let me think about this, the east side of the lake. They did that feeding. They crossed back to the west side of the lake to the Capernaum side. And the people who'd seen that feeding over there, who saw that miracle, said, where's he gone? Where's he gone? They went looking for him. And many of them jumped in boats and went across to the other side of the lake and followed Jesus. They went there and they asked this question, where is he? We want to see him again. But Jesus knew that it wasn't because they saw miraculous signs. It was because they'd had their stomachs filled. They'd eaten bread. They'd eaten fish. And he chastised them and he said to them, don't work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Again, he's talking about spiritual food that nourishes us. It's spiritual food that we need that endures to eternal life. And then in John 6, there's this rather interesting conversation. Jesus said to the people, my Father gives you true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people were probably scratching their heads and saying, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. The Father gives bread from heaven, the bread of God, what's going on? So Jesus clarified it and he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So back to the question, what is the place of the scripture in the life of the believer? It introduces us to the true bread of life. It nourishes us with the word. It nourishes us spiritually and it introduces us to Jesus, the ultimate one, the only one who can truly satisfy our spiritual hunger. And if we were to summarise that, it would be like this. Jesus is the one sent by the Father who satisfies our spiritual hunger. It's Jesus who is able to nourish our souls. He is the only one who can feed our spiritual life. And if we come back to that question again, what is the place of the Bible? Well, there's the answer, to introduce and present Jesus to us, to show us Jesus. Did you realise that this whole Bible is actually about Jesus? Some people kind of do this with their Bible. They come to uh, this part around about there and say, well, this New Testament, this is about Jesus, but this part isn't, is it? But actually it is. Because if we go right back over here to Genesis, let's do this across the stage. If we walk over here into Genesis, we have uh, the story of the patriarchs, the creation, the patriarchs, those men like um, Jacob and Abraham and all those guys, uh, they are they are the recipients of God's promise we're going to I'm doing something God's at work if we keep marching up here through the law the giving of the law so that the people knew what God was like uh, that God expected them to live in certain ways they couldn't do it they kept falling over we come through Joshua and through the judges we've already talked about the kings 
you know, King David, he was a type or a, an example of the one who was to come. It's talking about Jesus when there's stories about King David. We come through all of the stories of the prophets of Esther and Job and the Psalms. There's Psalms here that are what we call Messianic Psalms, Psalms that are talking about the coming Messiah. Everything through the Old Testament is evidence of what we call God's saving work. It's what we might call salvation history, the work of God through history leading to the coming of Christ. And in terms of history, Jesus is the hinge on which history turns. He was the one uh, that came to make the difference in history, the history of humanity. And so the word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is actually all about Jesus. The Old Testament talking about God's faithfulness, his grace, his love, his forgiveness for the people, his persistence, his patience, his forbearance. How many times did the people reject him and turn away? And the Lord must have just scratched his head and said, what have I got to do with these people? And so he'd send the prophets, he'd send the judges and call them back time and time again. <clears throat> Coming through to the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what it means to walk with Jesus. It's all about how to walk in relationship in a community with Jesus as the head of that community. And so if you want to strengthen your relationship with Jesus, where do you start? A great place is here with the Scriptures. Let me finish tonight really quickly with some practical, some down-to-earth kind of tips for those of you who may find getting stuck into Bible reading a little tricky. First of all, if you have trouble with discipline, if you have trouble setting patterns, grab a Bible reading guide. Use some study notes. Get something like a, a daily Bible reading guide and there's all sorts of stuff available. You can get them as apps, you can get them on paper form. They're all over the place. Because as they say, it takes about 10 repetitions to make something a habit. So give it a crack for two weeks, 14 days, and establish a habit. And if self-discipline is a problem, then having a guide to do that is really helpful. Second piece of advice is this one, have a balanced diet. Kendall will try and convince me that you can live on chocolate and chocolate alone. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with that, but only up to a point. If, uh, if you went on to a diet of Maccas and that's all you ate, you would become unhealthy, we know that. Even if you only ate cabbage, no one else would want to be around you and you'd become unhealthy. You need a balanced diet, right? And so we do from the Scripture. So choose to read some stuff from the Old Testament, some stuff from the New Testament, different genres in the Old Testament, different genres or different types of literature in the New Testament. Don't just keep reading the same stuff over and over. If you're not sure how to get going, start with something like the Gospel of Mark, a story that is brief and succinct and summarises the story of Jesus' life in just 16 short chapters. We're actually going to study the book of Mark uh, next year in term one. So even now, if you want to read through that a few times, you'll be way ahead of the game. But go deeper in time. You know, in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, the author criticised some believers because he said, you still need milk when you should be uh, ready for solid food. So even if you're just starting, start with something easy to read, but dig into the harder stuff. Be prepared to be stretched. And finally, uh, something to perhaps lift the burden from the shoulders of some. Don't sweat it if you miss a day. You know, sometimes we talk, you've got to read your Bible every day. 
and it can easily become legalistic. It's an aspiration to do that, absolutely. And it might happen in the morning, it might happen in the evening, it might happen at some other times. But there are occasions where it just might not happen. That's okay. Uh, it shouldn't happen all the time. But don't allow Bible reading to become a legalistic burden. It should be a joy. It should be something you enjoy doing, a bit like sitting down at a meal table. I look forward to the evening meal when I get home. It doesn't matter what it is, I'm going to enjoy it because I'm hungry for it. And that's the posture that we should have as we approach the scripture. What is the importance of the Bible to the believer? It shows us God's work. It introduces us to Jesus. It nourishes our soul. Next week we can talk about prayer, another one of those challenging things. The week after that, uh, the value and importance of worship, what worship is, what worship is not. And then uh, the final week, the significance of being part of a community where, as the scripture says, iron may sharpen iron, where we might grow together in holiness. But let's pause and pray before we wind up tonight. Father, we want to thank you again for your word that has been preserved for us through generations. For this uh, scripture that we have, it was written thousands, oh, yeah, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and yet here tonight we are unpacking what it says to us and it speaks because, uh, as the scripture tells, it's alive, it's active, it challenges us, it helps us grow. Lord, we would pray tonight that you would help us not to be, um, not to be on a diet when it comes to your word, not to be on a diet where we just pick at it from time to time or where we dip into it occasionally or where we might sample it just as a kind of a taster every now and again but where we might be nourished by it and so Lord help us not to be afraid of digging into some of those hard things that are in there remembering that we can ask others uh, to help us understand what we don't understand and remembering that most of all your spirit is with us as we read and will reveal meaning to us help us to be prepared to do the work of nourishing our souls and so grow muscles and bones and ligaments in our faith that will stand up to the challenges of life and what is ever before us. We thank you again, Lord, for your time uh, together with us tonight. We thank you that you are present and that you long for us to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. So bless us as we conclude with our songs, as we Acknowledge your goodness as we go from this place into this week. Help us to go strong in the things of God, we pray. Amen.